All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Ray McGovern, regular contributor at antiwar.com, former CIA analyst, in fact, a former chief of the uh, Soviet division back in the days of the old USSR. And uh, his latest for antiwar.com is did obama know russian hacking was a fraud but um also he's got one here on the blog i guess it is yeah it's on the blog uh ray on ukraine some lemmings wear wooden shoes and factoring in china welcome back how you doing ray good scott how are you i'm doing great it's been a little while since we talked the last time we talked you were helping me get it wrong that russia wasn't going to invade ukraine so what have we learned (laughs) sir well i learned a lot uh, it's not good to be so wrong and so convinced that uh, I'm wrong. I'm, I'm right. Uh, I learned that uh, mirror imaging is something I know all too well about. It was operable there during the Cuban Missile Crisis when a month before the CIA predicted that Khrushchev would never, ever try to put offensive missiles in Cuba because he would know <laughs> he would know how we would react. Wrong, wrong. Okay, so why did uh, why did I think that uh, Putin would not invade Ukraine? Uh, I thought that he could achieve his objectives other ways and uh, not endanger uh, what would be a, a really bad reaction by the rest of the world. What I didn't calculate was how how determined he was to come to the defense of his countrymen in the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine. And more important, and maybe I'm the only one that thinks this, but with the imprimatur or the nihil afstat, meaning uh, at least the uh, sotto voce uh, kind of approval of his best friend Xi Jinping, Uh, He was feeling his oats and he said, you know, it's now or never. Uh, These uh, missile sites are going into uh, Poland. They're already in Romania. Nobody takes us seriously. Biden promised not to put such missile sites in Ukraine. But then all of a sudden he forgot about it. There was no discussion of that in the negotiations. I can't trust these guys. I have China at my back. This is a good opportunity uh, the forces arrayed against our Russian-speaking neighbors in the Donbass are formidable. It looks like they might want to attack. Let's go. And again, with the tacit approval, and now we have pretty much vocal approval of the head of China, he went in. Now, number one, I never thought that Xi Jinping would give that approval. I mean, after all, China's Bad bedrock, its principal stand on international relations is no interference in the affairs of other countries. It's Westphalia. You know, it's the, you know, give me a break. This is our, you know, and all my Chinese 
advise my Chinese, my Chinese specialist advisors, whom I trust and who know a lot about more, more about China than I did, assured me that no, Xi Jinping would never countenance this. Now, why do I dwell on this? I dwell on this because this is a the all important factoid. This is the tectonic shift in international relations. And we end up here because of Ukraine is a very clear delineation between the all white West and the rest of the world. Mostly people of color, even Russians have been blackened so much in our propaganda that they are in effect people of color. Most of them are anyway. So we have the world divided. It's not a, a monopolar world anymore. Uh, and it's a bipolar world owning only insofar as you have the white West represented by NATO on the one side, and you've got the rest of the world basically on the other. And that includes places like Pakistan and Brazil and Saudi Arabia. You know, you name it. The rest of the world is not is not coming in on the side of the white West. Now, this has tremendous implications. Uh, today's speech by Putin uh, indicates that he's kind of given up on what Peter the Great mm, back in 1700, for God's sake, decided on, and that was to break a window into Europe. They saw themselves as Western, Westerners. They didn't like the idea that Genghis Khan and his compatriots had occupied Russia for two centuries and 20 years back when we were coming, we in the West were coming out of the Dark Ages. So they wanted to join the West. And this is a tectonic shift because Putin says today, look, I, we tried for 30 years. It didn't work. These guys are arrogant beyond belief. And they don't appreciate that the correlation of forces has changed. Now, maybe I'll add one thing for people who who know Russia or know about Pushkin, the greatest poet in Russia. Uh, he wrote a book about Peter the Great. He called it Medni Sadnik. It was the uh, bronze horseman. And he has him looking out over the Baltic on this great big, uh, he said he on a, on a horse, right? And he says, <clears throat> and he says, and I'll, I'll translate, Atsud, Suta, Grazit, Mibodim, Shredu. Shredu is Swedes, okay? Сюда грозит мы будем шведу, здесь будет город заложен на змей, на медному соседу, природой здесь нам суждено в Европу прорубить окно. Okay, окно, window, okay? So what, what Pushkin is saying and what he's putting in Peter the Great's mouth, which is pretty much what Peter the Great, the way he acted, was uh, from from here, we're not going to tolerate any more threats from the Swedes. <laughs> okay. The Swedes had occupied western part of Russia for a long time. So did the Lithuanians and so did the Hanseatic League. Okay. And this was when we were having our renaissance. Okay. So uh, we're not going to, we're going to face down all thing, all threats from Sweden. And here, uh, it is ordained by nature that we will be building a city uh, to the detriment of our Western neighbors who would attack us. Uh, fate itself has decided that okay, Atno is window. Rubit is break, okay? Prarubit is breakthrough, and we're going to break through a window to Europe. Now, that's been the primary 
Russian, actually Soviet too, uh, desire to be accepted by the West, uh, to be not threatened by the West, not invaded by the West, for God's sake, and especially not through Ukraine. So they're coming home to roost now. And Putin is saying today, after Z just yesterday made it very clear that he's still Putin's best friend, no matter come hell or high water, that he's given up on Western Europe, that he can't trust them, and that the rest of the world is going to have to take note that there not only is no longer a unipolar world, that's, that's, that's gone, uh, but that there's a kind of a bipolar world with NATO on one side and Russia, China, and pretty much the rest of the world except the Anglophone people in Australia and Australia, that, that kind of stuff. It's a different world. And I've not seen the likes of it since Kissinger played on differences between Russia and China and moved ahead in a very adroit way to get all kinds of progress done on strategic arms and other key issues way back in the 70s. And I'm proud to have played a role in that. Uh, and we can talk more about that later. Sorry to go on so long, but this is kind of a, it's kind of a liminal moment, I would say. It's a threshold moment. And uh, Ukraine has catalyzed it. It's been cooking for a while, but now we have Xi throwing his lot in fully with Putin in a way that most people, including me, didn't expect. And I think that's a major figure, <laughs> the major factor, where I was dead wrong in thinking that Putin would never feel uh, so, so strong and so supported by the biggest country in the world that he would go ahead and clean out what he calls the Nazis and what he, and trying to demilitarize the rest of, uh, of uh, that part of Ukraine. Hmm. All right. Now, one thing that we had discussed repeatedly in the run up to the war was the idea that, and I think this was both of our major error here, Ray, that you missed was we thought that Biden was trying to negotiate a, a way to prevent the war from breaking out. He clearly was threatening Russia. You better not do it for months, right? Warning that it was going to happen. That's what we were debunking was all those warnings. But the thing is, I think we both believed, uh, if I'm paraphrasing you right, I think it's fair to say that the idea was Biden has already given Putin what he really wants, which is maybe not a concrete one, but a real assurance that we're not really bringing Ukraine into NATO. And hey, if you want to inspect our dual use missile launchers in Poland, you can inspect those. And so even though he wasn't willing to put it in writing, he wasn't willing to frame it in a way that he was officially giving in to Putin. Essentially, he was giving Putin a wink and an elbow nudge that, listen, I'm backing down on the things that are provoking you the most. Not going to pull all military forces back to where they were in 97, like in the deal Clinton made. But mostly I'm giving in here. And but in fact, that wasn't really right. That it, it really the red line was I want it in writing as good as that is anyway, that you're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO and mm -hmm. I want real, you know, um, uh, neutrality enshrined in the Constitution for Ukraine. I, I want Minsk to respected 
for real, you know, a, a real ceasefire, an end to the fighting in the East. And he wasn't at all settling for these, you know, assurances. I mean, Biden told him on the phone, we're not bringing Ukraine into NATO. And you and I thought that was good enough, but that was not good enough. Yeah, uh, because we didn't realize how strong Putin was feeling. I, you know, well, but it, I it's think, really well, hard. Were we also making the mistake that Biden really was willing, was really signaling the climb down that we thought he was signaling? Well, because it seemed like that was really the error to me. That in fact Biden was saying that you better not do it, but he wasn't really willing to negotiate at all. Well, let me let me give you some really intriguing details here, which I don't get from any spies in Moscow, but I simply get from reading Russian media. Uh, you'll recall back in December, uh, Biden and Putin had talked about negotiations on these issues. As a matter of fact, Putin was pretty, pretty insistent. Uh, these had to take place and they had to place, take place soon. How can you, how soon can you do it? And, uh, they agreed they would start on the 10th, 9th and 10th of January this year. Now, that was early December, 7th of December last year. Uh, all of a sudden, the Kremlin calls the White House and says, uh, Mr. Putin wants to talk to Biden right away. When was this? 29th of December. Well, wait a second. We're, we're going to meet our negotiators are meeting in 10 days. No, he wants to talk to Biden right away. Now, to his credit, Biden says, oh, all right. So on the 30th of December, they talk. Now, we have the Russian readout of that conversation. I won't read the whole thing, of course, but I'll read the last sentence. Quote, Joseph Biden emphasized that Russia and the United States share a special opportunity, a special responsibility for ensuring stability in Europe and the whole world. And that, listen now, and that Russia... And, and that Washington has no intention of deploying offensive strike weapons in Ukraine, period, end quote. I'll repeat that last phrase. Joseph Biden emphasized that Washington has no intention of deploying offensive strike weapons in Ukraine. Whoa, I think you and I read that or knew about that. Very few others did because it wasn't in the U.S. readout and it wasn't very much in the press. Uh, what happened? Was that contested? Was that re readout said to be false? No, 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 no. Uh, this, these readouts are, are pretty, pretty reliable. So what happened? Now, you and I thought, well, my God, you know, what, what uh, Biden is offering here is not only in effect to rule out any deployment of what uh, the Russians call offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, but there would be a negotiation process. Uh, they would uh, agree eventually to remove the ones already in Poland. Uh, I'm sorry, already in Romania and going into Poland. Um, this would be INF. This would be the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Agreement uh, Part 2. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> that was a reasonable assumption here. Uh, it was kind of half the loaf, as I put it in one of my articles. Uh, and I thought that, you know, if Putin was going to negotiate on that, that basis, he could get he, he could relieve himself of the major worry, which is these offensive strike missiles right on Russia's border. Guess what? Uh, that commitment 
dropped through the cracks. It was never mentioned at Geneva. It all of a sudden, well, it's, I'm sure the people telling uh, Putin, well, you know, his advisors came to him the next day on, on New Year's Eve, uh, December 31st, and said, forget about it, Joe. Forget about it. And so Joe said, oh, okay. Well, forget about it. Now, what would that mean? Here is a personal one-on-one conversation, just Putin and Biden. And Biden makes this promise, okay? He says, we have no intention. That is, Washington has no intention of deploying offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. And all of a sudden, forget about it. Now, I think that that was this. This came, of course, on the 30th of December. So in the first part of this year, what's Putin doing? Trying to find out whether that was real. He found out it wasn't real. He found out not for the first time that he can't trust the word of the U.S. president, even when he speaks one on one personally with him. Now, as he looked over his shoulder and saw China willing to support him and what he needed to do in Ukraine, I think those two factors weighed very heavily in Putin's decision. There was no way that you or I could predict that Biden's promise here would fall by the wayside. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're not Vladimir Putin. Putin uh, saw what happened and decided, you know, these guys really aren't serious. I don't know who's running these policies, but it isn't Biden. Well, so look, I'm going to go ahead and clean these people. Then <laughs> let me ask you this. You know, I'm not trying to give uh, Joe Biden too much credit. He's obviously over the damn hill here, but he's got men in his 50s and 60s that work for him. And people over at CIA who actually do think about stuff. So I wonder whether something that we also overlooked was the idea that that turn from Russia away from Europe and towards Asia that you're talking about. That's such a big deal here. And that's premised on obviously big assurances from Xi to Putin, whether that's Mm -hmm. not what the Americans wanted. That as Putin said, look, we've been trying to get along with them for 30 years. They don't want to be friends with us. That maybe, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, one of their biggest fears was that this Nord Stream 2 pipeline was going to be, you know, really opened all the way for business. And that Germans, uh, that German dependence on Russian hydrocarbons was going to, you know, somehow once and for all thwart our agenda of keeping the Russians frozen out. And that maybe that was why they refused to negotiate in a way that they knew, as we're saying, would satisfy him. In other words, they're not really bringing Ukraine into NATO. The Germans and French wouldn't allow it anyway. They're not really putting Tomahawk H-bomb missiles, which our Tomahawks aren't even configured to carry H-bombs right now anyway. And they're not really putting those in Poland and Romania. And they weren't really going to install a bunch of hypersonic missiles in Kharkiv either. But they refused to put any of that in writing in a way that would be meaningful to dissuade... Pardon me. That would be meaningful to dissuade Putin from doing what he did. So... You know, obviously, American foreign policy is a government program and it never really works. But I wonder whether maybe there was a major stated goal here, which was, I mean, as we've seen, they're just blatant this whole time that they don't want to negotiate a ceasefire here. They want to see the war drag on. They say it over and over again. They have the whole time. That seemed like the biggest tell, right? Once the war started, in fact, as long as I'm rambling, once the war started, 
I went back and did a bunch of research on all the stuff I should have been reading the last couple of months. And I found so many references to the idea that what we really want to do is bog these guys down in an Afghan style or Syria style dirty war and hurt Russia over the long term and that kind of thing. So I know you're saying, oh, no, from the CIA, you know, textbook point of view, you don't want to heal the Sino-Soviet split. But eh, maybe you do if it'll help prevent a permanent German-Russian friendship. Well, I, uh, I guess uh, I have to identify myself with uh, Henry Kissinger here and uh, say that the worst possible outcome of all this would be a very tight uh, alliance between Russia and China. Uh, and that's pretty much what has developed here. Uh, that's big, as we say. That's got a, a tectonic shift. Now, we're getting closer to Ukraine here, talking about tomahawks. Well, uh, Scott, um, I've been talking to people like Ted Postel, who you might want to interview. Uh, he tells me that the, the holes in the ground that accommodate what uh, they call Aegis missiles, Aegis Ashore, are exactly the same diameter as would be able to launch tomahawks, which can have a nuclear warhead, and later uh, supersonic missiles if the U.S. finally figures out how to make them. Well, as we discussed before the the war, in fact, right? It's the MK-41 missile launcher. Anybody can look it right up on Wikipedia. They talk all about how it is absolutely dual use, and you could fire anti-missile missiles from it, or you could use that as a pretext to install offensive launchers, which, by the way, was part of the Russians' argument that we broke the INF Treaty first. Mm-hmm. We did. And uh, Ted Postel has actually has not only chapter and verse on that, but he wrote an article right right after we got out of that treaty and before, uh, you know, the, the expiration, uh, safe safe period expired. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very clear that we were doing this for years before um, we're preparing these sites after the ABM treaty was canceled by the little Bush. And then right after the INF treaty was canceled by Trump, uh, there was, there was a, a hell of a, a, a new strategic situation and Postal wrote about it. And so did others in, in short, um, the, uh, the U S had been preparing this kind of thing for a long time. Now, well, the relevance here, of course, Scott, in my view, is that uh, this is precisely what Biden promised not to do in Ukraine. And, you know, if I were Putin, I would say, holy Moses. And, um, and indeed, the day after Ushakov, who is uh, Putin's main man on this kind of thing, was just uh, ecstatic in the, in the Russian press. Not <laughs> the thing got into the U.S. press. This is good. He said, this is great. So what I'm trying to say here is that that was the key, in my view. Uh, this promise, another broken promise, like the one from uh, James Baker, not to move NATO one inch toward, toward the uh, Soviet Union at the time. And... Uh, uh, Putin looked right at what am I going to do here? You know, uh, would it suffice uh, to have another written treaty? Now, here's a little vignette. At the end of last year, I think it was December 21st, um, there's the state of the military address given by Russian Defense Minister Sergei uh, Shoigu. 
And he's got all his generals and all his admirals, the senior ones at least there, and Putin gets up and addresses it too. And Putin says, this time, and this was late December of last year, this time we're going to insist on a piece of paper, a written signature. This is going to be different from that promise that Baker made back in February 1991 or 1990. And, you know, I looked at those journals and admirals and this may be partly my imagination, but they seemed singularly unimpressed. <laughs> In other words, I'm reading their minds now, were they not thinking, oh, wait a second there, Vladimir, wasn't the ABM treaty written down? Yeah, that was, how about the INF treaty was also written? Come on, Vladimir, another piece of paper? <laughs> and then the next paragraph, he says, oh, okay. We need more than a piece of paper, and he kind of repairs the damage. But I think it was then that in December, he said, you know, piece of paper is not going to do it here. Oh, wait a second. We got a new promise from Biden. And when that fell apart, he said, well, the, the jig is up here. If we can move, now is the time to move, the more so since it looks like Ukrainian government forces are about to move on our friends in the Donbass. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertasbella. From the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War, Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. All right. Well, now um, I wanted to ask you, Ray, about um, what you think about how the war is going so far. I know you're not a military tactician. I talked with Doug McGregor earlier today about oh, the good. war. But, um, well, for example, right now uh, they've taken this major town, Kharkov, or Kharkov, or however you pronounce it, which is to the northwest of the Crimean Peninsula and just a hop, a skip, and a couple of small towns away from Odessa, which is obviously right. an extremely important port city there one which would be pretty difficult to just occupy because of the catacombs beneath the city and everything if you want to wage an insurgency that's a pretty good city to wage one in um so i don't know but again looking at the map getting once once the russians have consolidated uh odessa if they do it's only just another hop and a skip and a backside ollie to get to the border where you have this disputed so-called frozen conflict 
with the Transdenister, however you pronounce it, spelled mm -hmm. different ways, mm -hmm. um, with this small strip of Russia loyal land on the Moldovan side of the Moldovan-Ukrainian border. And there's been some low-level violence there, as they call it, uh, since the war has broken out. So it's an obvious target, although that could still be months away at the current rate that the Russians are going. But I wonder if you think that that's their goal now, is they're going to take the entire southern coast and incorporate that renegade strip of land there, which obviously, if they do that, um, that comes almost assuredly with a whole new set of problems um, in terms of like, you know, moving mm -hmm. that far west and now having western Ukraine encircled by, you know, in three directions anyway, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the question, you know, where will they stop? Um, the gains that have been made over the last three weeks are appreciable. Will they be enough to satisfy Putin? I think it all depends. And that's not a cop out on my part. It all depends on what the West does. If these very fancy uh, long range, wide caliber artillery and rockets go into the Western part of Ukraine, I think that Putin would be motivated and encouraged by his military, go all the way, go all the way to Transnistria, you know? take Azyessa. Can they take it? Yes, they can. Odessa, uh, if memory serves, is still primarily a, a Russian-speaking city. And, uh, you know, I, the problem, of course, is insurrection or insurgents that would come out and, uh, you know, kind of try to bleed Russia white. But I think that they're in this uh, for the duration. And I think as soon as they break out of uh, these cities that they've just now conquered and, and go further west, that they'll be tempted to do this unless unless the West shows some flexibility, unless these fellows from France, Germany, um, Italy, and uh, Romania, who visited uh, Zelensky on Wednesday, unless they came with a message that said, hey, we rhetorically support you, but this is getting really sticky now. The sanctions are really starting to hurt us. We need, we need to be able to depend on Russian gas and oil winter. So maybe maybe we ought to see if, what kind of a deal we can get now before the Russians go farther west. I think that's the name of the game here. I don't think Putin had any idea of wanting to go farther west to take Odessa, but I think that he could well be provoked into doing so. And then, as you say, that's a whole different ball of wax because there would be weapons in the what's left of the Ukraine that could hit Russian forces in, in occupied Ukraine and also in Russia. So pretty labile, pretty, uh, pretty delicate situation. You know, I mean, from the very beginning of this thing, it just seemed completely crazy that once the Russian troops rolled in that. Well, I don't know about crazy. It's very revealing that once the Russians rolled in. Blinken did not hop on a plane straight to Geneva to figure out a way to stop the fighting before this thing spirals out of control. The idea was, great, now we can have a dirty war like we did in Syria. Huh? The one that led directly to the caliphate and then Iraq War III? Yeah, that same one. That was what Admiral Stradvridis was saying to the New York Times in January. And this is the guy who would have been Secretary of Defense under Hillary Clinton. 
uh, if not Michelle Flournoy, maybe he would have been national security advisor, but, you know, very close. And, and she, of course, ranted the same thing on MSNBC that, uh, as the way, uh, in fact, as he put it to the New York Times. All right, fine. I admit it. We don't know the first thing about how to defeat an insurgency, but we sure know how to support one. And that's what we want to do here. Oh, no, I mean, we definitely want them to not invade. But I mean, if they do invade, though, then we're going to redo like Rambo 3. You ever seen that? And then they all talked about, too, how this is our redemption. That just like, you know, Afghanistan was redemption for Vietnam. Look, now we're backing the, uh, you know, poor upstart VC against the evil empire instead of being the evil empire. That this is sort of their redemption for the last 20 years of war. That, yeah, we were, you know, trying to remake these people's countries in ways they didn't want. But this time, we're helping people in a country prevent their country from being remade by a greater power. And so this is absolving us of our sins as we're pouring in all these weapons. And here we are having this conversation halfway through June. And we're fighting a proxy war directly on Russia's border, openly bragging on the front page of the Post, the Times, and the Journal every single day about how much money and weapons we're pouring in there. And... Seems like I'm and maybe a few other people, the only ones going completely crazy over this. Everyone else doesn't seem to notice that, man, shouldn't our guy be in Geneva right now? What the hell is going on here? And he, he's just not. There, there seems to be no interest whatsoever in Washington, D.C. in wrapping this thing up. Henry Kissinger mm -hmm. is the dove. And he said, look, mm -hmm. we're going to have to start having some talks here in a couple of months. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there are people profiteering on this war. You know, when we talk about like day before yesterday, uh, another billion point two dollars uh, going to to Ukraine. Uh, Biden just decided, well, they're not going to do Ukraine. They're going to Lockheed. They're going to Raytheon. Uh, they're going to these weapons manufacturers that actually work statics, sent a, a letter to their stockholders. This is going to be a good year because of the friction, because of the tension, because of the war in Ukraine. Okay. I mean, so uh, people have to have to really understand that. As I put it in the most recent thing that I wrote, uh, these four people from France, uh, Italy, Germany, and Romania who descended on Zelensky this week, what was their message? Uh, were they guided by their arms manufacturers? So, you know, hang in there, hang in there for, for the duration. Or were they a little bit nervous about what the long-term consequences of these sanctions and the possibility of war breaking out wider in Europe? I like to think it was the latter, but, you know, it's anybody's guess. These guys are not free agents. They're working under the power of the manufacturers and the corporations that support them. So that, that's, uh, you know, those are the forces that want this thing to continue. And, of course, there are people who believe that uh, Putin really is the devil incarnate. And then Russians all have horns on their heads. And there are ideologues who think, you know, that the, the sooner we can do in Russia, the better. Now, that is a benighted view of of russians and all the more so when it's russia and china that you're up against and that's the situation right now i mean the notion of, of taking down all signs streets that are called tchaikovsky or putin or not putin um, you know russian heroes that used to be streets used to be named after them in ukraine taking down those things prohibiting 
Tchaikovsky from being played in, in Berlin or elsewhere. Yeah, this is crazy. And yet people are seized with this uh, demonic view of what the Russians really stand for. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Hillary Clinton, my God, uh, Stavridis. Uh, you know, he writes a book, Blasely, uh, saying, uh, well, you know, we'll be uh, at war with China in 10 years. It'll be a nuclear war, probably. And uh, hello, don't these people know what they're talking about? They, they apparently don't. Let me add other, one other uh, item that uh, gives me the woolies, as we used to say. Um, how much early warning uh, does Vladimir Putin want to have uh, that the U.S. Or, or British or whatever are firing nuclear weapons or bombers or so, so toward, toward Russia? Well, in the old days, uh, when we had ICBMs, uh, there was a 30, 30 minutes or so warning, okay? Uh, the head of state could be involved. And there were several close misses, several false alarms where U.S. presidents were involved. And, and those were clarified before the balloon went up, so to speak. Now, it's not 30 seconds. Now, if you have these intermediate-range ballistic missiles that were banned by the treaty from which Trump exited in uh, 2019, uh, they give, well, they give Putin six to nine minutes, as was the case with the old SS-20s and Pershing twos that were destroyed by the IAEA agreement, okay? So six to nine minutes. Now, if they're, uh, if they're stuffed with, these holes in the ground are stuffed with um, super, or uh, not supersonic, but hypersonic missiles, uh, he himself has worried out loud that that gives him five to seven minutes to decide whether to destroy the rest of the world, pure and simple. Now, uh, would you want to be in that position? I think it's very reasonable for Americans to understand that Putin does not want to be in that position. What does that mean on the ground? That means that authority to launch retaliatory strikes have to be invested in subordinate commands, in subordinate, subordinate commands, as was the case when John Kennedy was president. And all you have to do is read Dan Ellsberg's book, his, his book on the doomsday machine, to read that he was shocked that when the war plans were finally given to the president of the United States, they included not only all the targets, and there were, you know, like uh, many targets around Moscow, but all the targets in China. Why? Because there was a Chinese-Soviet bloc, right? The, the, it was just uh, unilateral communism altogether. So what did that mean? Well, that meant that uh, uh, these people would be under, would be the targets, and more important for this discussion is how much time would they have? Well, with 30 minutes, Eisenhower and successive presidents still, still delegated authority to fire these missiles and warplanes. Even though they had 30 minutes, they delegated the authority to to commanders uh, in in PACCOM and uh, UCOM and so forth 
Uh, the subordinate commanders under them even got uh, authority to, to use these things. So it's a myth to think that even Joe Biden or even Vladimir Putin have more than five to seven minutes to make some decisions like this, or nine minutes as the as the situation exists now, mm -hmm. and that is incredibly unstable. That has to do with these intermediate range ballistic missiles that Putin is so anxious not be put on his uh, western border. Now, last thing here is that with respect to intermediate, and I'm sorry, with respect to ICBMs, intercontinental missiles or submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Guess what? The Russians do not have the capability for early warning that we do. What do we have? We have the ability to detect any launch of a ballistic missile anywhere in the world a second after it's launched. Do the Russians have that? No, they do not. The Russians only have enough radar capability to detect missiles fired from our ICBM sites in the northwestern part of our country. Can they immediately identify these incredible weapons shot from, from submarines? No, they can't. And uh, as I say, Ted Postel has written chapter and verse about this, and he shows that one time in 1996, uh, the Norwegian shot up a rocket from Norway and it crushed, crushed through this radar window that indicated, whoop, it's probably coming from Montana, right? And the, the, the Soviet strategic forces generals were all in a panic. And they said, well, do, what do our spies say out there in the Midwest? And the spies say, oh, everything's calm. Phew, what about the submarines? Uh, sir, uh, we, we don't know about the submarines. We have no capability to detect launches from submarines. Oh, my God. Well, let's hope. And they hoped, and they were right, okay? Now, that's how labile it is. In other words, in short, as for long-range ballistic missiles, the Russians don't have the warning capability that we have. With respect to intermediate-range missiles, warning doesn't matter because it's between five and 10 minutes. That ain't enough result. They're subordinate. They go to unit commanders, and those people can you know they can sort of well okay we got the signal or we got an errant signal well you know we're going to get fired if we don't fire and so they let it go uh, this is uh, what uh, any reasonable statesman would want to preclude uh, but uh, as you as putin says in his speech today we try to talk to these people uh, but they don't really seem to understand how delicate the situation is therefore we've given up We'll just do deterrence and these fancy weapons that we have now that they don't yet have. We hope that that will deter them and that the Chinese will also help deter them because the Chinese, as you may know, have sent some very, very sophisticated missiles around the world via the South Pole against which the U.S. has no adequate defense. Yeah. Well, now uh, I got to change the subject with you real quick here before we go, and that is sure. Julian Assange. Uh, today it was announced that the, I guess the Home Secretary or whatever the thing, uh, has approved his extradition to the U.S. There's still two or three more levels of appeal to go before that actually happens, but it's a pretty significant move. And I wonder, uh, gee, what do you think of Julian Assange, Ray McGovern? 
Well, first of all, Home Secretary Priti Patel is pretty pathetic. <laughs> um, you know, where are the where are the English nobles? None left, apparently. I mean, it's only eight hundred years <laughs> since there were English nobles, and and the they noble just the means King rich John. now. Nothing noble about it. <laughs> yeah, well, these guys were—they had some sense of how, of their rights, and on Runnymede, they—they uh, they made it stick. Okay, that was eight hundred years ago. I cite that in comparison to the vassal state that the UK, that the, the, the British or English have become now. What I focus on, uh, and this is probably uh, it's just a function of uh, the substance that I focus on, is what Julian revealed and why they really hate him. Now, he, he developed as the fourth estate was falling apart and being intimidated by, uh, by the powers that be, he developed the fifth estate. It was an incredible thing. Uh, it was uh, instantaneous availability of very sensitive information that could give, be given to him discreetly and secretly. Okay, And that's what uh, Chelsea Manning gave Julian. Now, she not only gave him damning evidence about what was going on in Afghanistan and Iraq, she also gave him a host of diplomatic cables and this one has to do with with has to do with Ukraine, so it's very very current, and people need to know this. Um, there was one cable out of Moscow, uh, written by the ambassador there, our ambassador, and the date was the first of February two thousand and eight. I have a copy in front of me. I can verify it as a, a legitimate, authentic cable because if I've seen one cable at a Moscow embassy, I've seen about 3,000 in my career, okay? Title, Nyet means Nyet, Russia's NATO enlargement red lines. Whoa, okay. Here's the ambassador, our ambassador. NATO enlargement, especially Ukraine, remains an emotional and neuralgic issue for Russia Strategic policy considerations also underlie their strong opposition to NATO membership. Now, here's the, here's the clincher, quote, in Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether or not it had to intervene, period, end quote. <laughs> okay. This is Bill Burns, uh, by coincidence, he's now head of the CIA. That's telling, the part I was going to interrupt and bring up, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he's being told this by a fellow named Sergei Lavrov, who was just appointed at that time to be foreign minister. As you know, Scott, he's still foreign minister. So what does this mean? Well, this means that the U.S., if you count, okay, 2008, 2020, I, I've done the subtraction here and I get 14. Okay. So the U.S. has 14 years to deal with this, to, to take seriously what Lavrov is threatening here, namely, you, Russia will have to decide whether or not to intervene. Now, this was revealed about 10 years ago. So we all, uh, the public, have had the opportunity to, to raise this issue and say, well, you know, uh, if the Russians feel this strongly about it, 
why the hell are we going ahead and trying to get Ukraine into NATO? Now, the end of the story, of course, is that that was February 1st, 2008. Two months later, on April 3rd, 2008, uh, at a Bucharest meeting of the summit, a summit meeting of NATO leaders, it was decided that, quote, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, end quote. Whoa. So they threw down the gauntlet then. Now the Germans and the French, they, they didn't really want this, but the U.S. wanted it, so they let the language go. Um, from that time, from that point in time, April 3rd, 2008, until now, the Russians have been complaining about that. And on good grounds, going way back to James Baker's assurance that we wouldn't move NATO one inch to the east in return for in return for what? Well, all we wanted was a reunited Germany. <laughs> oh my God! Can you imagine if you were Gorbachev or Shevardnadze in a country that lost twenty six million, twenty six million citizens in World War Two to a reunited Germany? How that went down? So this was a quid that was really hard to swallow. And when they asked for the quo, Baker. Cross my heart, hope to die, we won't move NATO one inch to the east. Now, that hurts. And, I mean, hurts. Uh, it's a violation of a promise. Now, I had a personal experience with one of, one of Gorbachev's aides. His name is Kuvaldin. He teaches at a university in Moscow. This was six year, seven years ago now. And I said, why didn't you write that thing down? Why didn't you get that written down? He says, well... The, the standard answer is that we didn't have a German buy-in yet, and that's true. And the Warsaw Pact still existed, and that's true, too. But then he looked me right in the eye, Scott, and he says, but Mr. McGovern, the main reason is we trusted you. Now, trust is the coin of the realm. The last thing that Secretary Schultz, whom I know quite well and respected very much, last thing he wrote talked about trust. Trust has to be the beginning of dealings with delicate issues such as we have now with Russia. Trust is gone. It has evaporated. That's why Putin today has pretty much put a, a coda uh, around Russia's approach. Forget about Peter the Great. It was okay for three, uh, three years, the 18th, 19th, 20 years. It was okay for, for three centuries. Now we've got to turn east. Maybe NATO will come around. Maybe the West Europeans will see some sense when they start freezing this winter. But meanwhile, we've got to defend ourselves, and we've got a big brother here that you won't you won't believe. His name is Xi Jinping, and he's right on our side. Yeah. Hey, uh, by the way, while we're talking, the Amazon man come and bring me my new book. It's the preview copy, brand new. Uh, it's not quite for sale yet, but should be by the time people hear this uh, early next week. Hotter than the sun. Time to abolish nuclear weapons. Scott Horton interviews Daniel Ellsberg, Seymour Hersh, Gar Alperovitz, Hans Christensen, Joe Serencioni, and more. And more includes you. Uh, an interview that I did with you. This is all a collection of uh, just transcripts, but it's really good. And it includes an interview that we did in 2018, right after Putin announced his new generation of nuclear weapons uh -huh. that was 
I forgot if he said the exact words George W. Bush in his speech or not, but that was clearly him revealing at that time, um, what, 16 years later, this is the results of the project that we began back when you ripped up the ABM treaty in 2002, jerk. And um, <laughs> as you referred to, missiles that go around the South Pole where we don't even have pretended defenses on our southern border, hypersonics, nuclear torpedoes, and all these things uh, that he announced in that speech. And people can go look that up on YouTube, too. I guess, uh, Connor, will, if you will, please, sir, uh, include that in the show notes. In fact, you can find not just the whole speech, but you can find the clip just where he's talking about nukes. And Terrific. Uh, yeah, that's good news. The new multiple yeah, uh, reentry vehicles and the rest. So, yep, you're going to love this book, man. It's so good. And I know it's a collection of interviews, right? But when I was, and it includes, of course, Ellsberg on the Doomsday Machine and these other things. And, uh, but when I was reading, I was like, man, this is really good. I know people are going to really love this thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure they will. And, uh, you know, I remember Putin saying at the time, uh, we couldn't get them to listen. Uh, and we weren't going to waste our money on ABM installations <laughs> because they don't work. They only feed the corporate welfare system of Raytheon and Lockheed. We don't have that kind of thing. We're going to develop very sophisticated offensive weapons that they will have to contend with because they can't defend against. So my my applause to you, uh, Scott, for putting that thing together. I'm eager to read it myself. There's no more capricious time than now to do so. Yeah. Well, you know, I really, I, I think, oh, you remember um, that speech that I gave two and a half years ago now uh, about, I called it, the new Cold War with Russia is all America's fault. And I was really proud yeah. that mm -hmm. you just didn't like the title because it was so abrupt, but otherwise that you vouched for it. And Lyle Goldstein mm -hmm. and another great Russia expert also said it was good. Well, I gave that same speech again in Utah uh, two days after the war began. It was two hours long. Oh, I added a bunch of stuff to it, um, but it was the same basic speech. And I, I filled it out a bit. And, and uh, yeah, so then... I'm essentially expanding that. I'm sorry for stuttering so much. I'm supposed to be a radio host here. So then I'm expanding that into a book, um, which uh, the working title is Provoked. They keep saying unprovoked attack, unprovoked attack. So I think we're going to call it Provoked America's Role in the Russia-Ukraine War or something like that. But um, Good. So this I have put on the back burner because I'm really working hard on this Russia book and I really got to stop what I'm doing to do this instead. But then I thought, nah, I'm going to go ahead and put out my book against nuclear weapons now, just so that in case we all get nuked and killed, at least I put out my book that said we should get rid of them <laughs> first instead of just putting it off and waiting too long. So um, that sucks for the Russia book because it has been put on hold for a few weeks here, but I'm getting right back to it real soon. But um, I know everyone is really going to get a kick out of this as a placeholder you, until the next one's done. What do you do in your free time, Scott? <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't have very much of it, but I still ride a skateboard at uh, almost 46. And I got a little old motorboat that I got off of Craigslist for a thousand bucks back a few years ago. That is a great little well, old thing. So we spend some time on that, but. Uh, otherwise, you. that's about it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, I'm chained to this desk. Mr. Libertarian, Mr. Liberty, chained to a desk all day long. But uh, anyway, it's a worthy compromise. 
uh, for yeah, I you know. think uh, yeah, I think it's a a public service, if if you will, and uh, appreciate your having me on. Yeah, absolutely, as always, Ray. Thank you. And that's Ray McGovern, everybody. Find him at antiwar.com on the blog and at, uh, well, let's see, is it slash McGovern? It should be. It is. Antiwar.com slash McGovern. Take you right there. The Scott Horton Show, Antiwar Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com. Antiwar.com. ScottHorton.org. And LibertarianInstitute.org.